So we come to number three of the four foundations of mindfulness. Those who are counting still. Mindfulness of the body. Mindfulness of feelings. And mindfulness of the mind. It's actually huge, mindfulness of the mind. And uh, so true to the Buddha, it was so simply and clearly described. He was so clear. The mind is where we are happy. It's the mind where we're upset. Everything really happens in the mind. One person is having a great day, another person is having an awful day. Everything else is the same. They're in the same place. They may be in the same family. They've eaten the same food. They've experienced the same thing, and it's perceived differently because of their minds. It's how we take a read on. It's how we actually are thinking about things that is what changes whether we're feeling okay or not. And we may know the theory of it, but in actual fact, how we live our lives isn't that way. I start probably nine out of ten Dharma talks by saying there are eight vicissitudes. As the Buddha described them, there are four pleasant kinds of experience and four unpleasant kinds of experience that every person's life is made up of. Pleasure, its opposite pain. Gain, its opposite loss. Praise, its opposite blame and fame or sort of public praise but not personal praise, indirect praise and indirect blame which is, you know, gossiping about you. Ill repute. Those magazines at the checkout stand. This is what our lives are made up of all the time. And we don't want to believe that fact. We really all want it to be that there should be only four. And when there's the four that we like, everything's good. God is in his heaven and doing his job, and we are in our earth doing ours, and everything's as it should be. And as soon as one of the other four shows up, something's gone awry in the heaven, I've done something wrong, there's something that's not acceptable, this is a problem, and it needs to be changed. It's going to worry us and bug us until something shifts. We need to have a a degree of this kind of thinking, because it's how we survive. We need to know the difference between friends and foes, food and poison, mates and inappropriate ones, and so on. We have to. It's how we're wired. We need to discriminate what's useful, what's inappropriate, and so on. So it's not that that's a wrong way of perceiving. Unfortunately for us, though, the little mind does that and nothing but that and can see nothing beyond that, making the pleasant the way it's supposed to be, the complete total way it's supposed to be, and making the unpleasant or the difficult absolutely unacceptable, inappropriate. No way can I go with that. And so we have sort of an absolute response, which should be a limited response. 
We need the limited response, yes, but it should stay within its own bounds. As Gill said, I don't know how you said it yesterday, something about the mind is a little too full of itself. I say that our little minds are too big for their boots. They really believe that that way about, of going about themselves is the be-all and end-all way. It is a good way to a degree, but it is not the be-all and end-all way. And we all know that somehow because we go like, I'm doing something wrong. This isn't quite working in my life. My life isn't quite okay. How can, how, how? What, you know, so where we look for something else, we look for a spiritual life. We have found, some people look for it in other things. So we need some other solution other than the usual ones. So today, rather than saying eight vicissitudes, I'm going to say eight visitors. So when a visitor comes to you, visits you, who is one of the four that you like, a pleasant visitor, we have a tendency not just to greet them politely, but to say, oh, I'm ecstatic that you've come. What took you so long? And we bring them in and then we spoil them to death. And, and then when they decide they're ready to leave and we don't want them to go, when we try and make them stay and we try and book them for more visits. And <laughs> how do we arrange our life that we could maybe live really close to each other so we could have a lot of them and so on? When they're a visitor of the other kind that we don't like, we don't answer the door, <laughs> we slam it in their face, not today, thank you, or they come in and we find them already in. <laughs> and then we don't want to talk to them and we're short with them or we fight with them or criticize them or some problem and try and kick them out as soon as possible and don't let them come back in again. Watch out for them, put alarms, you know, have gates with locks, I don't know what we do. That's the little mind's response. And between the two of the pleasant things, which we really latch onto and scheme to have as much of as possible, believing that that's the way it's supposed to be, and the problems that we spend so much time trying to avoid, and if we can't avoid, we complain and whine about, or we blame somebody for, or get mad with, or something, get scared. In between... There's a whole host of other visitors, way more than the eight, that, that are often there, sneaking in, that we haven't even noticed before. Because we're so busy chasing the visitors we like and grappling with the ones we don't that we've missed the fact that there's like millions of other things going on, coming and visiting us all day long, that we completely dismissed. If they don't make us feel great or awful, why would we bother with them? And so we don't. And so our lives is mostly taken up with the stuff we love and the stuff we hate. That's what we're doing most of the time. Have you noticed yourself sitting there, focusing on the good, focusing on the difficult? Not a lot in between for most of us much of the time. And so uh, these behaviors, these responses to these visitors are called greed, hatred, and delusion in the language of the Buddha. We chase after and do all we can for more, scheming, planning, designing, hoping, yearning for the ones we like, clutching onto them. And then all of that, a range of things we do when there's difficulty. 
and some of us do more of some of it, we whine. Some people are real whiners. Have you noticed yourself whining in there? Some people are just, you know, they're just like noticing all the little irritating things. We call, we, some people call themselves aversive types. You know, they just zero in on this is too noisy, this is too dirty, this is too this, too that. Some people notice all the beautiful things. Some people just don't notice very much. There's a story Sharon Salzberg told, I heard once in a Dharma talk, and she considered herself a deluded type, a type that doesn't notice, and went traveling with her friend who was a greed type, the ones who notice what she liked. And they were in a hotel in India. They got into the hotel and the, her friend said, can I have this bed and put her stuff down on this bed? And after like 20, and Sharon was like, sure. 20 minutes later, you know, they're sort of lounging on their beds. Sharon said, why did you want that bed? And her friend said, well, the window's here and the light is like this and the doorway's there and the cupboard is their way that way, so I thought that would be the nicest bed. And she had checked all that out and chosen it right away and Sharon was like, you're kidding. I had no idea the door was there and I would never have thought of having to have a, yeah, a chest of drawers. That's a pretty good thing. She hadn't noticed in her surroundings, for instance, any of it and she was just amazed when it was traveling with this person who was so quick to notice the stuff that she liked. So sort of exaggerated version of what we're all like. So the version, the things we don't like. And then, then there's all of the stuff, which we're all all of these things, of course, that we don't notice. Delusion. Delusion has two manifestations, really. Delusion is not noticing like that, not paying attention, because something isn't particularly relevant. It's not going <laughs> to uplift you or depress you, so we don't bother, which is a lot of what it is. But also, delusion is um, not seeing clearly, seeing in a distorted way, which both greed and aversion are. They're delusions. Because we love certain visitors, other people don't love them. They're not necessarily individually, inherently great visitors. We just happen to see them as good for us. So we've, we aren't seeing them completely as they are. We're seeing the way we're relating to them and then saying they're good or they're bad. It's that we don't like them. They bother us for our particular reasons. It's more about us than about them. That's delusion also. That's not clear seeing. So both greed and hatred are delusive as well as not seeing is definitely delusive. Deluded. The thing is, the little mind doesn't know it's doing that. It just does it. When something to it is pleasant, it automatically goes towards it. It doesn't realize it's doing it. When it gets what it wants, it's happy for a while. When that thing disappears, it's miserable. It doesn't know it's miserable or why. When it gets what it doesn't like, it's miserable. When that thing disappears or is over, it's relieved and doesn't know it. Most of the time, this is going on automatically underneath the radar. The reason it's underneath the radar is because we're looking, we're placing our attention in the visitors. We're noticing the weather, we're noticing what the person said, we're noticing the food, we're noticing the objects and the experiences around us. That's where we place our attention. And when they please us, give us pleasure, we call them good, we chase them, we're happy. 
when the opposite happens, we are affected by them. What this means, of course, is that we are completely at the mercy of them. And not just them, because they're not inherently doing anything, but we're at the mercy of our take on them. So we are at the mercy of ourselves. <laughs> and we're therefore causing ourselves our own ups and downs. But of course we're blaming life for it, you know. It's because this person did this, or this happened, and that's why I'm feeling this way. As we practice in meditation, we begin to see that that's what we're doing. We tell you, pay attention to your breath. That's an object, a thing to just notice. And you notice yourself paying attention to your breath, and then you start noticing yourself whining about it. Or whatever it is you're doing with it, clutching onto it. We usually give suggestions to meditate on things that aren't going to be stimulating too much of that mental response, greed, hatred, and delusion. The breath on the whole isn't wonderful and isn't awful, so we choose it to notice. Walking is just walking. It's not a fantastic experience. It's pretty unstimulating. But still, we add our opinions, right? We interpret our experience as a certain quality and then become elated or depressed by that. So, in mindfulness of the mind, we can deliberately, as we did when we did that experiment with uh, Gil this morning about placing your attention in your hand, we can deliberately place our attention on our minds. This is one of the most amazing things that humans have the capacity to do. A human can, with its mind, watch its mind. It's amazing. We can see ourselves feeling feelings, thinking thoughts, making plans, worrying. It's as though we have this double mind part that can see the other part functioning. Chittanupasana, mindfulness of mind, is when we, and we need to sort of extract, release the interest in what we think is important in our well-being, the vis visitors, and instead focus on how we are relating. Now when you're a guest and you have a visitor, which is why I'm using the analogy, a reasonably civilized visitor doesn't grab the visitor. I mean, a, a reasonably civilized host doesn't grab the nice visitor and drag them in and strap them down and make them stay forever. You know, we kind of were happy that they're there and we know that they'll leave when they're ready. We enjoy their arrival and we allow for their departure. We aren't running them. We're respecting them. We're appreciating them. We may well enjoy their company, but we're not in charge of that or them, or what they do. And the same thing with when we have visitors we don't like. When you're a civilized host, you don't slam the door in their face. We say, oh, it's not very nice. You know, don't, you know, this isn't, I'm not going to love this time. We don't have to love it, but we don't have to be rude about it, or make it a problem to solve. It's a visitor. It's coming. Here it is. So if we can behave in a civilized way with our experiences, you know what I mean by civilized, 
just let it be this way. Meet it, allow it, respect it. You don't have to engage with it particularly. You don't have to do anything much. Here it is for a while, and then it leaves when it leaves. You might be quite relieved it's left when it's left, but it left when it was ready. You weren't running that either. We are able to learn to do that. When we can do that, we don't, we're not having greed or hatred or delusion. We're simply being a good, visit, a good, a good host. Gatekeeper, housekeeper. Utejaniya, Sayadaw Utejaniya, one of the teachers of, in, one of the um, abbots in Burma, where I went to stay a few years ago. He does this with his hand. He says, usually, I'll do it so you can see it, usually our attention is out into the world, checking out this, pursuing this, worrying about this, dodging this. He said, do this with your attention. Just keep switching it back. Switch the attention back into your own mind. Let whatever's going on out there go on. It's it's happening. You don't have to, to do anything different with any of it. Instead, pay attention. How are you with it? This is happening. How am I when this is happening? What does this trigger me to respond? So really, in when, we, when we study mindfulness of the mind, we place our attention in our responses to things, in our relationships to things, not so much the thing, ourselves. And when it's a greed or a hatred or delusive kind of response, it's our reactions to things. See that. Watch yourself. Watch your mind. Watch it grab. Watch it push. Watch the fist, as Gil was saying yesterday. Now, for some people, the fist may not be a thing you can, you can see your mind doing a fist. So there's different ways to perceive when we are not being a gracious host. The main way you can see this when we're, is when we get involved. When something is going on in the mind and it's stimulating a whole lot of interest, energy, it's taking our attention. We're caught in some drama. Lots of thoughts are being generated, lots of feelings are being generated. We just, it's as though we're in um, a whirlpool and we don't, often we don't even want to be there. We don't know how the hell we got there and we don't want to keep being there. But here we are, thinking, thinking, thinking. We're caught by something. It's as though it's got the strength and it's attached itself to us. Some people use the, the phrase, it's sticky. It's like sticks with us. There was words in the English language like this, you know, um, I was in the grip of fear. You know, or um, I just got carried away for a moment and forgot the time. There are many ways we describe how situations overwhelm us. I was overwhelmed. I was overwhelmed with excitement. And so I wasn't very responsible or on top of things or I didn't know what was going on because I was so taken up with whatever it is. And that's what happens when you are taken over by or taken up with or get involved with, caught up in. How is it for you? How do you experience that? Preoccupied with? Compulsively doing something? 
all of those descriptions, however, however it works in your mind, in your experience, are descriptions of not being in charge. You're not doing what you want to do. Something else is a stronger force than your choice. When that's happening, we're caught. And when we're caught like that, we're not, we're not in control. We aren't free. The teachings of the Buddha are how to be free from being caught like that, how to extract yourself from the influence of something, some force, some memory that just keeps on leering up at you and upsetting you again, or some longing that you just can't put down, it just keeps pulling on you. If we can watch, rather than the thing, because we tend to believe This is the problem. We believe that the things that happen are all-powerful. The little mind utterly invests the authority of our well-being in the things that are happening. If we can look instead from the things at how I am with them, we'll see they aren't that powerful. They don't need to be so powerful. It's when you've got no control over yourself, they are that powerful. They do make you happy or sad. They, they ultimately do cause us the joys and the sorrows of life. But if you look and see yourself wanting something or worrying about something, you see how you're doing it. You see how caught you are. You see how tight you get. You see how much time and energy you're taking over this thing. You see what a struggle it is. What a burden. What a, a huge invest, investment of your energy you're putting here. When you see yourself doing all of that, instead of looking at the trigger, look at how you're doing it, we begin to realize how crazy a lot of it is that we do, or how at least exhausting, and oftentimes inappropriate. Oftentimes it isn't necessary to keep doing it. We're doing it because we've habitually done it. We have certain ways that we've always done, which were useful when we first learned them, but are they that useful still? What we really get to see when we look at the mind doing its, I call it neurosis, you know, the habitual thrashing around with something, getting its teeth into something and worrying and worrying and worrying and unable to sort of put it down. When we see that it doing it, what happens, because we're training our minds to be in the present moment, we're training our minds to stay in the present moment. And when we can stay watching this behavior over time, we really begin to realize it's exhausting us. We can feel the the burden of doing it. You can't feel that when you just see it quickly. We don't learn very much by the quick glance. And we're really good at the quick glance. We can see very easily, very quickly, lots of things. Lots of things happening outside us and lots of little things going on inside us. We're very adept at speedy catching, multitasking. We're amazingly good at it. We're not so good at staying with one simple thing. Stay, stay, stay. And then discovering more and more subtlety and depth in that one thing. We're not so good at that. But when we learn that, as we learn that in our meditation, as a skill we learn, concentration is that we notice what our behavior is inside, what the mind's doing, and we get to see 
not just that it's doing it, but what it feels like to do it. We also get to see, we get to see lots of things. We get to see the mind, let's say there's something that's worrying you. Okay, so let's say worry is the thing that your mind is doing. It's worrying and worrying and worrying, so you realize there's some, definitely something going on here, there's some kind of visitor that's a problem. We are busily worrying about the visitor. Well, let the visitor just be whatever it is. Now, look at the worrying. Wor- I'm worrying and worrying. How is that worrying felt? How do you know you're worrying? You can feel the brow furrowed and the jaw and all, you know, whatever it is you're feeling in the body. That's one way to feel it. You keep feeling it and you feel like, oh, it's not very pleasant to be feeling this way. You can feel the, the cost on your system of it. It's, a, it's hard work. It's unpleasant. It's dukkha. It's stressful. Keep being present with it and different things will happen. Because of your staying present, when you stay present with it, sometimes you begin to realize, you know, it's when that that sound happened or that memory happened, that's what triggered it. You see the beginning of it. Even in hindsight, you go back and you realize, you know, it was when so-and-so happened that I started to feel this way and then that occurred and then this felt like this. You start seeing an unfolding pattern. Keep staying, because we'll learn to stay as this meditation develops and you start seeing then this turns into this and then this worrying produces a lot of those kinds of thinking and then that has this sort of effect on my mind state then I have a mood that's kind of bummed and then when I'm in that kind of a mood I I have those kinds of thoughts but then I see something completely unrelated walk by and I critical of it because of this worry state that I'm in because of this thing that happened we start to see the associated patterns of what's going on in our mind. And then, of course, we see that if I act out of this state and I'm critical of that person going by because I've been worrying all morning about something, and then I'm critical to that person, then I'm going to actually have a conflict. Then I'm actually not going to have a friend. I'm now going to regret that you know I've gone and offended somebody. Now I have to go and make amends. We start seeing the effects of what we do. Mostly, we don't notice that kind of thing because we're so speedy. We're just in this moment, in this impulse, in this reaction, and on to the next, and on to the next. And we don't realize the implications. We don't realize the causes, the conditions, the effects, the outcomes. We don't see all that. As we practice more, we get to stay more present and see the whole flow of things. This is called wisdom. It comes by realizing what's going on, which comes by watching. You don't have to figure it out and be brilliant and remember anything. Keep watching. And again and again, you'll see the results of a certain mind state caused by certain conditions have certain effects. And the more we understand how that whole thing unfolds, the more we're, we're... extricated from the automatic force of it. It doesn't just do it then. It comes and we can say, oh, here's that visitor. As soon as we say, oh yeah, here's that thing that's going gonna, gonna to irritate me. I'm not going to spend so much time getting irritated because I know I get all headachey then and I don't want that. And so we just don't get caught the same way. We, we have become mastering our experience rather than being victims of our experience. 
this is simply what the Buddha means by liberation. Liberation from being out of control. Liberation from being victims of the way our minds are perceiving and then making us act and react and respond. We then get to have some choice about it. That's what's so great. Well, when we have choice, we all are motivated towards well-being. We aren't just kind of like non-programmed. Deep in us, we know we're all aiming for the light. It's just like plants grow towards the light. They just do. It's part of being alive here. We, unless there's some really, really deep traumatized current in some people who, who are, are so unconsciously run by some, you know, need to cause harm, for instance, even then, that person really wants relief from that stress. We want relief. We want peace. We want to connect. We want to belong. We want it to be easy. We know. We all do. We're just going about it, usually, in the wrong way. We're going, often we're going about the very, we're doing the opposite thing. It's called barking up the wrong tree. Our intentions are great, and our little minds are trying to make you feel good. You think, if I can just kick that nasty visitor out, I'll feel better. That's what we think. And if I can make this other one stay, strap them down, it'll be great. I'll have a really good time. It's intended to make, you, make us feel better. We're trying. But we don't realize the consequences of that, that it doesn't work that way. It, it does work that way, but only so far. A much more profound way is to actually be a good host and to not add. So the greed, the hatred, the delusion is um, all the reactions, is what the mind gets busy adding. A situation is here, period. Okay, this is worrisome. At the moment, I have, just as an example, actually right now, it's not so noticeable. Maybe it's because I'm not paying attention to it because I'm talking, but I've been having this discomfort at the very bottom of my spine for the last couple of weeks when I'm sitting. Only when I sit, any kind of sitting, any kind of chair, couch, sitting like this, sitting, anything. And so it's like, is there, have I got some kind of degeneration of a disc in there? Is that what it is? So it's, it's quite reasonable for me to be thinking, oh, Oh, is there something wrong? Is there something wrong? Is there something wrong? To start worrying. My little mind is trying to make sure I can fix it. If, is it fixable? Then let's get it fixed so you don't have pain. Absolutely. Fair enough. But what if there was something going on in my spine, hypothetically, that I couldn't fix? If I spent my entire time struggling against it, I'm pretty doomed. Like, say I have a degenerating disc that's un... Say that's the case. That's un operable, inoperable, and I have to live with it. If I spent my time worrying about what I have to live with, it was awful. It would be awful. It would be ten times worse. I don't want to have to do that. I want to be able to say, this is thoroughly unpleasant, period. And now I'll have a cup of tea. It's still unpleasant, but I don't need to add and add and add and add. My additions are to try and help the situation, but they don't. They make it worse. They make the situation, whatever it is, very significant. If this is the reason for my well-being, is my back. If my back were fine, I'd be happy. 
that's wrong of you. It's part of the visitors of having a body. It's getting on in years, you know. It's, it's been a pretty good one. I'm not going to like it. If there's something seriously wrong, I'm not going to like it. I don't think it's that bad. It's not that. I'm just using it as an example. But you never know. I don't want to be a victim of circumstance. I don't want to be a victim of my mind's trying to make me feel better by getting rid of what it can't get rid of, hanging on to what it can't hang on to. I want to enjoy what's enjoyable. I won't enjoy what's unenjoyable, but I don't want to struggle against it all my life. So I can say it's unpleasant. It's uncomfortable. I can have discomfort. That's enough. I can have pleasure. Chocolate. Very nice. That's enough. The thing about being present with this bigger mind, being mindful, it's like it puts a period at the end of a statement. It's like, oh, so there's a discomfort in my back, period. Yes, I'm a bit concerned about it. Nothing I can do right now, so I'm not going to do anything right now, period. It's just finished. I'm, I'm now able to be here in this moment. Without the mindfulness, there aren't periods we just get pulled into, and who knows how long you'll be thrashing around in something. There's no protection. What the mind can see, it can see greed, hatred, delusion to some degree. Greed and hatred are the easiest to see. Delusion is really hard to see. Can you see what you're missing? One thing, of course, you're noticing, and you're telling us, some of you, as we're more present, we notice way more stuff. Because we didn't notice before. We were just caught up with the loud problems and delights. And, and now you see all kinds of more. It's one of the lovely things that happens in retreat. People are talking about going around and it's so beautiful, this is so lovely. Just noticing so many things that we were meaningless to begin with. Our lives become rich. We're much less missing things. It's a beautiful part of meditation. It becomes full. Munindra, the teacher that's been mentioned before, it's a little quote. He says, I meditate so that I can uh, enjoy the small blue flowers by the side of the road that otherwise I would miss. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a humble reason to meditate, but there's so much going on in this beautiful world. So that's, that's one of the things that happens. Um, but we also, in, uh, as we notice what's going on inside, if we do this, p- apply our attention to our minds, we notice, Gil was talking about it somewhat yesterday, not just the core states of pushing against or getting caught up with or worrying and so on, greed, hatred and deluded states, we also notice the finer states of mind. We can really perceive when watching the mind becoming really stable or really spacious um, or really receptive, really friendly. These beautiful qualities become really obvious. And some of you have been describing them to us when you come and talk to us, some of the things that happen. To be able to appreciate and even, I would say, enjoy the mind's capacities, the subtle capacities. We can't do that when we're so preoccupied with what's happening to us out there. So it becomes a very, uh, a much richer form of life, both in noticing more out there, but in noticing so much more. We don't just see the, 
the craziness of our minds. We see that too. We need to have we need to have a fair amount of patience, and we need to have a lot of forgiveness, because we're going to see our neurosis also. We'll see the beautiful things in us, but we'll also see the crazy things in us, the embarrassing things. I can't believe I'm still doing that. I know perfectly better. I know it doesn't make any difference to anything. It just irritates me, and yet I'm still criticizing North American drivers. <laughs> but what happens with time as we keep seeing our stuff? It's like it isn't that the mind doesn't do these things. It's that we don't... None of, nothing gets to be so significant. Things get less and less significant. So I see myself criticizing North American drivers. This is one I'm, I'm going to be getting well known for this because I'm admitting it so much. But I laugh like you laugh. When I see myself do that, I just go like, God. And it doesn't, it's not heavy. It doesn't last very long. It doesn't push a lot. It doesn't matter. It's just silly. It's just a habit. It's, of course, justified. But it's <laughs> but it's 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 not where I invest my well-being. Like I don't, I'm not so heavily identified. It's just a little trip that I notice. You know, I really loved it when I first learned to drive, and then was really into it. My first boyfriend was a driver, which is how I learned to drive. And you know, we had to park our cars on a slope. And the driving instructor who's testing us got out, put a box of matches, not a card, but box of matches, underneath the rear tire. And then we had to start the engine and release the handbrake and pull away without squishing the matches. <laughs> <laughs> and every time we, ha- we looked in the mirror, it had to be every 10 seconds. And if we didn't look in the mirror every 10 seconds, we failed our tests. And I say to people all the time, like, hello, look in the mirror. <laughs> I'm behind you. <laughs> But it's a playful thing. You know, we can, do, we can be neurotic and we can have our little ways of what makes us happy and what we chase and what bothers us, but it gets lighter. We aren't so, you know, it's not such oppressive. It's like we're in, I, you know, we use the word cages. It's like we're not free. We're sort of under the effects of things. We're being pushed around by things. And this is what begins to release. When there's more choice, more flexibility, it's, it's, it's lighter. So freedom, liberation, lightness, enlightenment, they've all got words that which describe this experience of, it's, it's more fun, it's not such a drag. Life isn't so hard. It's exactly the same life with exactly the same eight visitors that happens. And it's always going to happen. This is... This is this reality. We're going to get old. We're going to get sick. Accidents will happen. Injury will happen. We're going to have our hearts broken. We're going to be praised and adored. Everything's going to happen. We don't have to be the victims of it and struggle so. And and, uh, this process then gets its own momentum, not just, as Gill said today, if you keep being mindful, mindfulness starts growing on itself and takes, it just builds and gets stronger. This process of defusing the power of oppression grows. When something you see as a pattern in yourself, of, of your mind, of pushing at something, or worrying, let's say, about something, there are some planners here, planning, planning, 
you see the habit, you see it happening, just by seeing it, it can't be as powerful. Because the part of you that sees it isn't being run by it. Part of you has extricated yourself from the influence. And so then that habit is there, but it's less forceful. And as it gets less forceful, we have more options to put it down. It becomes weaker, it becomes reduced. The mon- I call it monster-reducing practice, you've heard me say that before. So, is there's a shift of power, really. There's a shift in, in, uh, in the, what's dominating us. Our wisdom gets to dominate. Our, our, our choices get to dominate. Our choice for what will be ultimately really, really helpful gets to be stronger, rather than the little mind's impulsive assumptions. We assume to get rid of the unpleasant is the answer. It's a silly assumption. It's actually arrogant and downright wrong most of the time, because you can't. Another thing I'd like to say about watching your mind, I described how at times we can see the stimulus of something, causing something to unfold, turn into something else, turn into something else. We can see, we can anticipate the long-term effects of things. Sometimes we can know where a a habitual way of having a certain take on life began. I mean, remember our childhood, remember some you know, situation we were in and how it set us up to be warriors, for instance, or something. We can see the unfolding. One thing we get to see, I encourage you, and particularly in retreat you can do this, is you can see the the habits of mind arise, play out, cause different feelings, cause different kinds of explanation, words, drive you to want to do certain gestures even, some of which you're not going to do because you're in retreat. Keep watching, and you can see a ho- it's like a it's like a, a wave coming, doing what it does, subsiding because you're not letting it have full power. It subsides. It loses its energy. The monster gets reduced. It withers. Sometimes it's really quick. It just like disappears. Like suddenly you catch worrying, and you go like, oh, "I'm worrying again," and it's finished just because you noticed it. But sometimes it just fades. Anyway, stay present. Because at some moment, you'll no longer have it. It won't be there. Then stay present and get to experience a being, being a mind that has not that. It's not oppressed at all. Feel the difference. Abide, hang out, stay present without worry. When we can actually really experience, not just think we've got it theoretically, but experience the presence of worrying and its effect, and the absence of it, and that effect, our inner being learns to choose. It's not theory. It's not intellectual. We don't have to remember. We know. We see and we know that is the instruction in the Satipatthana Sutra. You can see this happening, and you can know what it's like. You can experience it for yourself, and your system learns. This is exhausting and stressful and unhelpful and it's gone now and this is relaxing and spacious and easy which would you rather spend more time doing? (laughs) 
it's, it's already knows that. And so it's more and more likely to keep choosing what's helpful. It, it doesn't switch, though, because you've got it. That's the, be careful, because it's a habit. It's a program in the brain. They measure the brains, you know. Brains are changing. Meditators' brains change. They actually can measure. It's plastic. They can see new pathways coming. So we're running different programs, so we'd be patient with that. But it changes. You just do the present moment awareness steadily, and it changes. Okay. So how are you going to greet your visitors? It's about how are you, the host, when all these visitors come to you. So of course I have to read Rumi's guest house. This being human is a guest house. Every morning a new arrival. I'd say every moment a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all, even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still, treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door, laughing, and invite them in. Be grateful for whoever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. Welcome difficulty. Learn the alchemy true human beings know. The moment you accept what troubles you've been given, the door opens. So we'll be quiet for three or four minutes. So we'll focus our attention on ourselves as the host, not on the visitors. They're all going to come.